If a successful colonization is to divide and conquer, an answer to that has to be reconnecting the pieces they are trying to divide. This podcast attempts to hold space to connect the pieces of Palestinian society because it is the dissolution of Palestine across the world that calls for spaces to reassemble the people. So, grab a cup of shai or kahwa, and let's have a conversation. This is Connecting the Fragments. Welcome back to Season 2 of Connecting the Fragments. Today's conversation is with the famous Oud musician, Rani Mali. Because Rani and I had such an amazing conversation when we spoke, and as a special premiere to the new season, this conversation will be split into two episodes. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Known for his talent with the Oud, he's the composer of the podcast theme music, and he is also an actor, producer, writer, educator, and musician. Wow, that was actually a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. That was, that was very much a mouthful. <laughs> but welcome, Ronnie. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I should have just put down, you know, dad and, and, and worker sometimes. You're also, <laughs> yes, you're also a husband and a father and a son and a brother. And you do all these amazing things. I mean, honestly, I read your bio and your bio is the things that people dream of having. You know, I appreciate that. That's that's very kind of you. Sometimes, though, if, it, if anything at all, then it's just a testament to just stick to doing what you love to do because eventually things will start to happen. And even if they don't, you'll at least have amassed a lot of things that you've done. <laughs> I, You know, you get so caught up in being in the thing that you're doing, whatever the work is, and you don't think about the market might leave or whatever. You just, you do good. My grandfather always said it, you know, and I, I lived my entire life by this. He, he said, in, uh, your work is your worship. And I really took that to heart to mean that Whatever you do in, in life, you know, do it with sincerity, with ikhlas, as we say in Arabic. I love that you live by that because I think that so many people don't. And to see other people just living their truth is amazing. That's something I want for everyone in this world. You know, it's, I think about how me and you met, which I think is kind of funny, <laughs> especially because our families knew each other so well back in the day. And we met because I decided to pursue something that I really love to do and you do what you do so well because you love it and it kind of brought us both together and we didn't even realize we had a common background that we probably should have known each other all along. I, I know I was actually very pleasantly surprised and and you don't even know how often that happens. I find people that I've known their families or my family knew their family from uh, a long time ago all of a sudden I find them you know 15, 20 years later, and I'm like, oh, you're doing this? This is amazing. Oh, this is great. And then it just kind of brings us together. I thought that was hilarious that I knew your uncles growing up. I knew your dad, <laughs> <laughs> but I had no idea that, you know, I didn't know you. And, it, I, you know, I guess it's just proof positive. Another testament to what we were just talking about. You do what you love and the universe will conspire to aid you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And for those who are listening and are wondering, what are we talking about? I was looking for someone to do the theme music for the podcast. And one of my very good friends, she recommended reaching out to you. And I did what you know, most people do. I went on Facebook and saw how many of our, you know, mutual friends we had. And we had a lot. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to reach out and see if he's willing to do this and come to find out, um, you know, well, we scheduled a, a meeting and we're in the middle of talking and he goes, wait, I know your family. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so then we went down this rabbit hole of who he knew and come to find out he knew my uncles and my dad, like he said. And, um, and so, yeah, guys, cousins. <laughs> cousins, oh my God, you knew everybody in my family. 
Um, I knew one of your favorite cousins when he was born. I literally used to hold him and go play with him when he was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Effie. <laughs> um, uh, my, my mom always says, uh, there, there are two Arabic sayings for this that always come up. Uh, one of them is, they say, That means a coincidence is worth a thousand appointments. I agree and with that. I, it, and it's just, you know, my mom would always say also, Jabal Jabal Mabilki. You know, mountains may never meet, but human beings will always find a way to find each other. I, I can't emphasize how how much that has been a lot part of my life, especially in the Palestinian diaspora. I, I had a very similar experience with a friend of mine uh, named Majid Abu Adaniya. He plays Kanun, he's a calligraphist, he's a, a brilliant artist. Turns out we, we met, you know, re-met, shall I say, about 15 years ago. We were talking, and he's like, hey, weren't you that kid that was playing music at this place? You know, I was like maybe 10 at the time, 12 maybe. I said, yeah. He's like, you remember we talked? We met a long time ago. He's, he's a little bit older than me. He's like an older brother, really. I said, really? I didn't know that. And we end up meeting 20 years later. You know, he's worked with my company. We've, he's done, we've done residencies together. We have bands together. We perform together. We taught together after that. Even while we were rekindling this relationship we're talking and i said well, where does your family live and his family is originally from al-khalil but they live in albira i said well my mom's family is in albira right now and it turned out that my aunt on my mom's side is best friends with his brother oh my who God. owned a hair salon in albira and they're like neighbors that lived across the street from each other you can't write this stuff you can't make this up you cannot i love that um... so rani would you no. mind telling the audience a bit about yourself so they have a little bit more of a background about you? I was born and raised in the southwest suburbs of uh, Chicago metro area to immigrant parents from Palestine. I'm first generation Palestinian American. My uh, father is from a town called Betunia and my mother is from Jerusalem. Uh, she's actually from the town called uh, Lifta in Jerusalem. They got married, you know, back in seventies and my dad had already been here. In fact, his family from Dharma Ali, they've we've had people we found, we've traced people that have been in Chicago, especially here, since as far back as eighteen ninety-three. Wow. And uh they came as, you know, this wave of immigrants that was coming during the last vestiges of the Ottoman reign in our regions and in Palestine especially. Uh, while the Turks were there, so there was a huge influx of Syrians that were coming in. At that time, you know, all of us were probably considered Syrian, you know, greater Syria. And so they came here in like 1893, and then they started to slowly trickle in. But I have relatives who were from Batunia, who were here as far back enough to fight in World War One and even World War Two. So we've been a part of the American fabric here for a very long time, for over a century now. And so I was very fortunate that my dad was a musician as well. And we lived in a very, it was an open household because I lived with my grandparents. My grandfather was, he was a pious man. He wasn't by any means like religious as we see religious people today. But he was religious enough that he and his friends opened, they built the first mosque in the South Side, which was the Bridgeview Mosque in in the 80s, in like 81 or 82. You know, I'm not going to make this about religion, but the fervor of religiosity in general was not a thing. We all kind of believed what we believed. We weren't being fed this daily diet of religion or anything like that by any means. The community was very liberal, which allowed us to really participate in the musical scene. My dad was considered a very free spirit. <laughs> Put it that way. He not only played at weddings and played in a band, him and his friends owned a nightclub uh, on the north side of Chicago called Cleopatra. Uh, and I thought, wow, okay, we have a lot of culture and artistry in our, our family. For me, this was a big thing because as, as you grew up, particularly you know, playing in a predominantly Palestinian community, playing at their weddings, you're learning their songs and folk music and all of that stuff. But I also had exposure to Palestinians who were in the northern parts or, or in, as we say, Arab, you know, uh, Arabs of 48, uh, those who, who ended up being annexed into Israel from Al-Nasra, Akka, Haifa, Tarshiha, and these regions. And those people listened to a different kind of music, but they were phenomenal musicians. And I just kind of, I knew 
that sphere, but I also knew the sphere that I grew up in, which was mainly people from Al-Dufa, Al-Gharbiya, the West Bank. Yeah. And we, we had a lot more of the folk music in us and everything. And so it was interesting to see this dichotomy, of, you know, walk this balance between... Because the West Bank, we have, you have to understand, we, we didn't have a lot of... Not that there weren't any classical musicians there. And when I say classical, I mean Arab classical. But a lot of music and stuff that was coming out of there was more folk. While a lot of the music that was coming out from the northern part, you know, was very close to Lebanese and Syrian, was what we call Tarab music. Back in those days, the music you listened to and you played almost informed your identity. It's still kind of like that, but today everybody's kind of listening to everything. But back then, because of the way you accessed music in general, was it was either live, it was on the radio, or it was not on the radio, and you were not part of the mainstream at all. Like, I grew up listening to a lot of rock and roll because that's what my cousins gave, you know, pummeled me with. Yeah. <laughs> that rock and roll was not being played on the radio at the time. In fact, you know, in America, that was, it was a very subversive thing. Rock and roll, with, you know, Metallica, there was no way Metallica was going to be played on the radio. Well, I just want to say my dad, he told me about how he used to love listening to you play the guitar when you guys were kids and how you played Stairway to Heaven better than better than anyone he knows. <laughs> I can't believe your dad remembers me playing Stairway to Heaven. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I did not think I would grow up starting to play Middle Eastern music. I just liked music because my dad liked music. And he would take us to the club with him. And my brother was on the stage, who's younger than me. He would put my brother on stage at the age of like five to play obla, you know, darbuka with them. Yeah. And I just remember seeing the guitarist on stage. Because up until that point, I, I was also playing drums. You know, I was playing drums and I was in band at school playing drums. My dad went and got me a snare drum and everything. But I remember seeing the guitarist on stage with him in the band, who happened to be Assyrian. If there were also... Uh, uh, a United Nations of M Middle Eastern musicians. The drummer was Armenian. The guitarist was Assyrian. The uh, the keyboardist was Iraqi Assyrian. My dad was Palestinian, and the singer was Lebanese. Ooh, uh, that's like, a combination. Only only in Chicago could that happen, you know. <laughs> and I just remember seeing the guitarist, and I was like, whatever that is, that is what I want to do. You know, he sat down with me. I was sitting at the at the bar as a little kid, you know, just. <laughs> drinking my kitty cocktail and they took a break and he came sat down he's like i said i really want to play and he said if you want to play you got to practice all day every day he said he, he told me about his stories of like i would start in the morning and my mom would come knock on the walls at by dinner time and i was still upstairs playing i said wow that's vacation that was during the time when people used to smoke in the bars he took his cigarette and he put it out on his fingertip he's like you see this <laughs> Said, yeah he said this is how much you need to play you know to build your calluses on your fingers while i didn't have dreams or aspirations of putting cigarettes out on my fingers <laughs> i did <laughs> i did think about this takes a long time and i'm going to commit to it that was when my dad said okay you want to play guitar save up for a guitar and i'll pay for your lessons he wanted to see if i was serious about it i guess so that's when he put me to work at my uncle's bakery on 63rd street making i learned how to make pita bread for that good baklava, a variety of the different staples of, you know, what makes good Turkish coffee or Arabi coffee, etc. And I saved up enough to go buy a guitar. And lo and behold, he did get me lessons. In fact, my first guitar teacher was at Rossi Music in Oak Lawn in the Southwest Side. And he ended up becoming the bass player for a super successful rock band called Disturbed. Oh, wow. And yeah, and he was their bass player, original bass player. He was my first guitar teacher and kind of really you know, took me under his wing in that sense. And I stopped playing rock and roll. I mean, we got to playing really, really heavy music after a while, you know, because that was the identity that I identified with. I was not a mainstream person. I did not like listening to the pop radio because they weren't playing the music that my cousins were giving me. Like, you, you know, you might have been lucky if you heard a Guns N' Roses song on the radio at the time. But they were giving me things like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Metallica, and all these heavy rock bands that a lot of people started accusing me of, you know, that's devil worship music. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, whatever. It just it gives me power to play guitar like this. And yeah. it wasn't until my dad's friend, who was Tunisian, who was a master percussionist, they had just played a gig with the super famous Lebanese singer Sabah. 
huge Lebanese icon. So he invited this Tunisian friend to come over for a barbecue, and I happened to be coming home from a lesson on my guitar. He said, hey, kid, you play guitar, come here. <laughs> he said, play this. And I didn't know what he was saying. He just hummed something to me, and he asked me to play it back. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. He's like, just play it. And so I stayed there until I figured out where the notes were, and then I played it rhythmically back to him. And then he just turns to my dad, and he says, now they must play Arabic music. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go inside and learn, you know, sweet child of mine right now. I'll, I'll maybe someday. Oh, it and started what, there. It started there. That was the moment. It, it really was. Actually, it really kicked off a whole other. It was a catalyst for a bigger trajectory because I thought, yeah, a couple of years from now, I'll look at that music, whatever. He comes over the week after, tells me, my brother, put on something nice, bring with your uh, guitar and your amplifier. And he literally threw me and my brother up on stage to play at a wedding with him. Oh, my God. I, I knew maybe three chords, but I had rhythm because I grew up in a family of percussionists. I made it through. That was like my first time on stage at, for a five-hour wedding. It was a Middle Eastern wedding. And after that, you know, you get over stage fright really quick. But that's where it really started. But at the same time, my brother and I did not want to lose our American identities because we really liked playing rock and roll. He was a drummer. Then... Um, one day we were driving around in my dad's car. He, God bless him, he was tolerant of us listening to the heaviest of music, right? And, uh, we were listening to Slayer, <laughs> the cassette player. Notice I said cassette player. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he didn't say anything. I mean, Slayer at that time was probably the heaviest music he could listen to. He didn't say anything. He's like, all right, well, maybe we can listen to something uh, I like to listen to here. And, and you know, it has guitar on it. You know, he just kind of dangled that carrot in front of me. I said, okay, put it on. And he put it on Abdul Halim Hafiz's, uh, Hafiz. Uh, the song was called No Ode. And it just opens with like, you know, this epic strings and then the guitar kicks in. And I was just transfixed. I was like, what is that? That's a different way of playing guitar. And I fell in love right away. That was my like gateway. So we started to play more Middle Eastern music and I started to learn more and he gave me a plethora to learn. And it was at a time, you know, this is all before the internet. So the only way you were really truly able to access people, uh, to access this music was through people that you met face to face, or they would send you material like video cassettes or cassette tapes or sheet music or something like that. So the process of becoming part of the musical community in the Arab community that we had was really a more or less a, a social activity than it was just like an academic one. Because I had to use my ear. That was the first thing I learned from that Tunisian drummer, is he was teaching me the way we learn, is orally. And that transcends into so many other fields, right? Storytelling, passing on our traditions, understanding the importance of our heritage. And from that age on, even, I, I realized that I wasn't just learning my music, music of my Arab heritage uh, and Palestinian heritage, but I was actually also taking on a responsibility to keep it up, to preserve it and to push it and bring it forward to teach it to other people. And, and I, I want to also just say that it was also because of music that I learned an immense amount of tolerance and a great deal of understanding for tolerance because the majority of the gigs that we were playing were actually at not just weddings, but at Arab Christian churches. Uh, you know, it, it was it became such a normal part of our process mm -hmm. that I, I never, I, I didn't separate. I didn't disassociate Arab Christians from Arab Muslims by any means. Because we were at a Christian church probably every week, playing a hafla, playing at a christening, a baptism, a wedding. The people that we were working with, you know, were Jordanian Christian, they were Lebanese Christian, they were Assyrian Christian, they were Palestinian Christian, and we would go to the churches and, and play. And so much so that we became friends with some of the, the priests that were there. Abuna Dahdal, who, who was at St. George's Orthodox Church. Mind you, I'm, I'm coming from a Muslim background, but nobody really talked about that. We all found common ground through the art and through the music. For some people, it came out as a shock that there are even Arab Christians in the world. To some Arabs, even. And I'm like, you know, Christ is from Palestine, right? <laughs> so, arguably, well, arguably, the most famous Palestinian out there is Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, right? you know? Then I also learned that, you know, there wasn't just one kind of Christianity in the Middle East. You know, here in America, we grew up seeing Protestant and Catholic, you know, and then you might see Presbyterian and a few other 
sects that are more or less European. And then the ones that were started here alone, we've got everything from Jehovah's Witness to Seventh-day Adventists to Baptists and all of these, you know, Mormons. These are more of American takes now and Western takes on, on Christianity. But if you look at, you know, what it, it really is and the people that I was intermingling with, these are the original Christians. These are real Christian people here. Right. Um, it helped me shape what my identity as a Palestinian was as well. Because I understood that, well, if Jesus was from where my family is living and has lived for centuries, then his teachings and the people of his teachings live alongside my people. And it really helped me to dispel the notion of what I understood to be this Christian Judeo country of America. I think that kind of brings me to our next question, you know, building off of everything that you've shared with us. One of the things we talk about on this podcast is fragmentation and understanding that means to us and and how we relate to it. And so that begs the question, is there a specific Palestinian fragment that you feel you belong to? Well, I mean, the one that I can say my heritage and ancestrally that I belong to is going to be the West Bank, Palestine, Palestine. And my, my mom is from Jerusalem. I don't know how much more Palestinian one can get, right? My dad is from Betunia, which is basically Ramallah. I mean, these are two of the continually occupied by Palestinians, I say, <laughs> organic and unfortunately by a military occupation. So that is definitely the first place that I, I, I lock into, that that's my heritage right there. And in being from the West Bank, I can't help but always understand that even as a first-generation uh, American, I am in diaspora. And, and I've had issues, to be quite honest with you, as I, because when I was 15, I went to Palestine in 93, 92, 93 for the first time, and I saw it under occupation. There was no such thing as the Oslo Accords. There was no talk of peace. I just understood that there was an occupation there. Uh, I remember participating in protests here with my aunt and uncle who helped to create the United Holy Land Fund to help uh, students over there with with grants and, and funding to go to school. And I remember, you know, chanting as a 10-year-old, you know, Reagan, Reagan, you should know, we support the PLO. <laughs> uh, and, and I remember also talking to people just on the street and saying, you know, they, where are you from? You know, where are you from, from, as Amazad would say. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I would say Palestine. And, oh, I love Pakistan or Pakistani food. Or I said, you know, Jerusalem, you know, Jesus, that guy. <laughs> that's, that's where my family is from. And it, it bothered me to see how disassociated people's minds were with history because of this rhetoric that they're being fed by this other entity that I was still discovering called Zionism and what that entity was doing to our people throughout the world. And so when I went there in 93, I saw the occupation. An anecdote to that is we arrived and my first greeting, we, we went to Tel Aviv airport. My dad and I, you know, we had arranged somebody was going to take us. This is before any walls or any major type of checkpoints or anything like that. And so we come upon a burning wheel on the road to Ramallah. And we had to stop, the driver stops, and there's a soldier there who's probably maybe two years older than me, gets us out of the vehicle, gets us down to question us. And, you know, this kid's kind of like shaking almost. It's one kid, and there's like a burning wheel next to him. He had his, his, his rifle was pointing right in my face. And I'm, you know, maybe 15 at the time. I didn't notice it, but my dad did. And my dad literally leans over, grabs the front of the right, the barrel of the rifle, and just lowers it down with his hand and says to the kid, there's no need for that right now. Pointing this thing like right at my face. And my dad just kind of lowers it. And the audacity my dad had, first of all, to reach for somebody's weapon <laughs> to lower it. For this kid, though, who he had made a connection with, that was my first greeting to Palestine. It's like, welcome home. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> And so we get into town, mm -hmm. and the next day I felt like I got to get up, you know, jet lag, and I, I want to see this new place that you know, Betunia. Yeah. And so I, I get out to go walk around there, and it got to be like eight o'clock, maybe seven, eight o'clock. All of a sudden, this like row of Israeli jeeps comes through the town on the main street. I mean, and it's anybody knows or has gone to Ramallah, you have to pass through by our house on this road to go to Ramallah through Betunia. It's just. That's the road that, that takes you there. So it's, it's really populated now. And these jeeps just come rolling through and they're screaming something on a, a megaphone and they're saying, Menat Jawal, Menat Jawal. I had no idea what the heck that even meant. Menat Jawal. Turns out that means curfew. You know, my 15 year old self didn't know what that meant and I could give 
you know, two craps about it. <laughs> so <laughs> at eight o'clock in the morning, I went out for a walk and I went walking all over Betunia and I'm like looking for people. I'm like, man, these people must sleep in late. I don't know why they're not out right now. What's going on? And I get by this, dukan, you know, the store and the door is just slightly open. And the guy goes, what up, guy? Come here. What are you doing out here? I said, I'm walking. He said, don't you know there's a curfew? And I didn't and realize it at that time. He's like, you better get home now. Uh, I said, okay. Well, I, I thank God that my dad also said, always keep your passport with you. If you're going to go out by yourself, keep your passport with you. Okay. So I'm walking back home, you know, taking my time. I'm doing, you know, as they would say, because yeah. you know, a promenade. I'm walking home and lo and behold, a jeep comes up, pulls up next to me and stops me and says, what are you doing out here, kid? I start to speak to them in English. Like, oh, English, what is your passport? Thank God I had it. I pulled it out. And he sees Chicago. He's like, oh, Chicago. He makes the sign of Al Capone. Bang, bang. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah. I, and he talked, and then he starts talking about the Chicago Bulls. This Israeli soldier is talking to me right now about Al Capone and the Chicago Bulls. This That's- is surreal. <laughs> so I make, he's like, here's your passport. Get back home. You know, there's a curfew. I'm like, what the hell? What the hell is a curfew? I've never been in a curfew before. That's when I realized that there are things like striking in Ramallah. There was Itrab. I remember getting caught in the midst of a shower of rocks when settlers were trying get would get lost and trying to go through Ramallah. Uh-huh. I just get I just got pulled into a hardware store one day walking in Ramallah, so I wouldn't get hit with rocks. You saw one, and it just started raining rocks. We we have probably some of the most botula. Bafal, you know, heroic type of people that, that lived there that I saw with my own eyes combating this occupation. This is before the Second Intifada. I wanted to be part of that. I told my dad, tell us, I, I don't want to live in America anymore. I want to live overseas. I want to go to a conservatory in, in either Egypt or in Palestine somewhere to learn the music. And that's it. I don't want this place. What did your dad say? At the time, he said, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. So I went back the next year on our way back. I went back overseas with my grandparents to help them uh, till the land. So I was I was like, yeah, I'm going to go work the land because they're fallahim. You know, I grew up with a garden in our backyard. We didn't have grass. We had a garden. I don't know uh, if you remember uh, my grandparents' house here in Chicago. It was the same way. Totally. They they all had that. I mean, yeah. what, what, what more should we expect from the people who are from the Fertile Crescent? Yeah. I mean, even if you're from the city, you're a farmer. That's true. I remember, you know, helping my sitbo go and pick stuff from the backyard so we can make salad. Like she wanted us to know how to do that when we were kids. Absolutely. Every day was for me. Go get me some mint from the side of the house. Yeah. (laughs) Go pick some mint. I didn't know what yogurt tasted like because I only ate my grandmother's homemade yogurt. Exactly. (laughs) For all of my life. I remember the Um, first time I ate a regular, I I guess what you would consider like regular store-bought yogurt, uh like the American kind. And I was like, this yeah. stuff is disgusting. This isn't, this isn't yogurt. What is this? I, I had the same reaction. I, I, I ate some Dan and I would see it in the store once in a while, but I didn't know what it was. So I took a bite once. I spit it back out because I thought it was bad. I didn't realize yogurt was supposed to, they, they had sweet yogurt. I didn't even know it was a thing. You know, this is talking about that fragmentation. We are farmers, you know, that's what we did. You know, my mom's family, we own buildings in West Jerusalem that are still standing there that still have our family name on them that still have Quranic sayings etched into the building, except they're in West Jerusalem, occupied by predominantly Jewish people. What I'm getting to is the next year we went back, and I went to help them till the land, and I I kind of, I told my dad that I'm not going back. I'm going to stay here. And I even went to register in uh, Bidazayt University, and I thought, that's it. You know, because I went and I finished high school early, Mm -hmm. just so that I can try to get myself there. Well, on my way back, what did they announce is the Oslo Accords. This is from the second time I came back. So then I said, my dad has no excuse to tell us that we can't go live there now. Okay. Uh, I remember, you know, going there and saying, hey, we're free now. <laughs> Just him taking us down to the one place that you were finally allowed to raise a Palestinian flag, which was Ariha, Jericho. And I just remember getting on a bike and riding around Jericho, feeling like oh, this is the first step into Palestinianhood. I became very patriotic towards my identity, who I was, what was I going to be? Even here in America, I made it very solid and clear to myself that I'm Palestinian. I have an American citizenship, but I am Palestinian. Uh, I, I can't buy into this American patriotism BS. Part of the reason was because some of my family was already in the U.S. military and they served their country and they were a part of it. But part of me felt conflicted 
because I was also learning history of America. And I saw the disenfranchisement, specifically what moved me was the disenfranchisement of the Native American people here. My argument to myself was, we have to go back overseas because that's our homeland. That's where we have to go. And I just kept feeling this weird, overwhelming sense of guilt living in America on somebody else's land that was taken from them. Yeah. That's my story. That's the story of my people. Why, why, why do I want to live here? I still ask myself that question, to be quite honest with you. So when you ask about what fragments of it, my heart is still there. I still want to go live there, and I plan on moving there. I've taken my daughters there, my family there. My, even though my wife is a Polish-American, she felt very comfortable over there because she realized how cosmopolitan our country truly is. My kids are going to know that they have land, they have a home there, and that is where they are from. And they still do. And they wear their thobes proudly. They Aww. know it's called the thobe. And they, you know, the first thing you ask them is they're Palestinian. In fact, my uncle jokes, he's like, well, if your wife is Polish and you're Palestinian, then your children are Polish-Tinian. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, um, <laughs> you know, my, my mom is Irish-American, and my, my parents always got, man, your kids are just born mad, right? They're just born yeah. rebels. <laughs> Irish and Palestinian? IRA and PLO, huh? (laughs) Between the IRA and the PLO. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're just born angry fighting for their land. So that was was us growing up. (laughs) Fighting for, you know, standing up for what you feel is right. Because you know we, it's in our DNA now. The injustices that our people have endured specifically for the past 75 years is ingrained in our DNA. And any hopes that some European ideology would come in and think that we would just forget over time is absurd. Because if anything at all, we won't forget. When you spread us throughout the whole world, we're going to spread that message even more. I agree with that 100%. My kids now, they know they're Palestinian. And one of the biggest things that they're learning now is with you know other classmates and having to explain in the same way that you went through and I went through growing up. Palestine? Where's that? Pakistan? <laughs> I, I remember talking to my kid once, when, my youngest, when he came home from school one day and he was upset. And I said, well, what, what is it? And he goes, well, the teacher was asking about languages around the world. I, you know, rose my hand because I, you know, I wanted to tell her Arabi is the language. Like we speak Arabic. He rose his hand and he was like so happy because he was practicing his accent in his head, he told me. And he's like, I wanted to say it good. His teacher calls on him and he goes, well, Arabi, like my family speaks Arabi. And she goes, well, what's that? He's like, it's a language. And she goes, no, it's not. He goes, yeah, my family in Palestine speak it. And she goes, Palestine isn't a place. And he was so embarrassed in front of all of his classmates because he was so proud. He was like, I want to talk about it. And then his teacher, he was like, how could I argue with her in that moment when everybody's looking at me? And so, you know, I obviously, you know, spoke to the teacher and everything. You know, there was some backtracking and, and some apologizing that was done. I just felt like it was his first lesson in understanding that you're Palestinian and that's a message you still have to spread no matter what happens. The next week he went back into school because it happened on a Friday and he went back into school and he was like, yeah, I'm Palestinian. He just went up to the Uh teacher and goes, yeah, I'm Palestinian. And I couldn't have been more proud. Oh, that is so endearing. That's so beautiful. You know, and that's the thing I think that those who spread the disinformation about us saying that we never existed or all of this kind of stuff, it's like, well, first of all, that's histrionics. That's complete fallacy because if we never existed then who were the ottomans occupying who were the english occupying then right were they just there no there were airports there there were buildings there were vehicles there was sophistication there was industry there was all kinds of stuff happening there one of the main arteries of the ottoman empire was palestine and and jerusalem because i can't tell you how much resistance i encountered from people and I find myself, especially working in the arts and especially working in theater and, and film or, or any of those milieus, kind of an unsaid thing. I mean, th- there are a lot of Jewish people in this industry, and there are a lot of people who ascribe to the Jewish narrative that has been created in America of this Zionism, Israel is important. And I think a lot of it, really, in the end, is merely to appease the European guilt of what they did to the Jewish people who were European living in Europe at the time. And so they want to ascribe that same aspect of, uh, of what happened to their history to Jews who were living already in the Middle East. It's not like there were no Jews living in Palestine. You know, my grandmother tells me a story of 
they had a building in West Jerusalem, the buildings, three of them that I was telling you about. And the neighbors were Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. And some were European, some were Middle Eastern, and some were from various other places. She would tell me often the story of how the rabbi that lived across the hall from them, his children used to call my great-grandfather Baba. Oh, wow. She would tell me, like, people were more concerned with being good neighbors than they were with being Jews or Christian or Muslim. And in fact, her brother, who was a, a doctor, which would be the equivalent of, a, a, like, a general practitioner in in Jerusalem, his partner was Jewish. And while the Irgun and the Haganah were going around committing terrorist acts, these are the, the Jewish militia groups that eventually established their state. When they were going around committing these acts, there were many Jews who lived there and who were neighbors and lived side by side with their Arab neighbors that did not go along with it. They saw them as reckless as terrorists. In the, in the same vein, you might see white supremacists here. She would tell me how some of our neighbors and even my, my mom's uncle's partner, my great uncle's partner in the hospital, called them to inform them and tell them, you better get out of there right now. They're coming by. They're, they're creating an ambush. Oh, wow. So, in fact, there was one Jewish neighbor that they had. He was the, like the head, the manager of the Ottoman Bank in Palestine at the time. After 48, they came and they seized our building. And my grandfather, great-grandfather, would try to make his way out. He had his horse, mind you, his horse waiting for him. And he wouldn't leave his horse. And he didn't want to leave his apartment or his home either until they literally came in to, to force him out. So our Jewish neighbor, who was this manager of the Ottoman Bank, said, okay, I have your horse lined up over there. Go at this hour now, and you've got cover. So he went, and he went to meet people that we knew in Ramallah to get a home. You know, obviously, this is a war going on. Obviously, you know that many homes during this time were looted, and a lot of that bounty and the booty that they collected ended up in the coffers to this very day in Israel, in right. archives, in the Knesset, and in various archival institutions, hidden away from public so that there would not be proof that we existed. And people would just literally take over your house, which is what happened to us in Jerusalem as well. And so my uncle leaves, but this neighbor went in and took all of our stuff, all of their stuff, safe for safekeeping for the day that we might be able to return it to them. And lo and behold, after 67, when Jerusalem opened up, they were able to come to Ramallah with a French delegate to actually return oh these items. Oh, wow. That had been left in the home. It showed me was that there was a, a testament to something that was dispelling the notion that people keep saying to me that this has been going on for thousands of years, people. They've been fighting for thousands of years. And that's such BS. No, they have not. This is, call it for what it is, it's a European settler colonial occupation that is yeah. happening in the Middle East. And it's even subjugated its own people who identified more with being Arab Jews than they did Ashkenazi Jews or Israeli Jews in that sense. The whole premise is messed up from the start <laughs> in that regard. But I think we got to that point where I had to also reconcile who, who am I, where am I, and, and realize that, you know what, to the day I die, I'm going to fight for that building that belongs to my family in Jerusalem. One day, truth and justice will prevail, and I'll be around as long as I don't abandon that cause ever in my life to see that happen. I'm just like meditating on everything that you just said. You know, I feel like you're saying your family story, but again, and I think this is the case for most Palestinians, is you're speaking to everyone's story because everybody has a similar story. I think about some of the conversations that I've had with my aunt. She's a lot older. She actually was born on the day of the Nakba. The catastrophe happened and my sitho became a mom at the same time. So May 15th, 1948. She jokes all the time that her and Israel are the same age. <laughs> but uh, she remembers she ha they had Jewish neighbors. Like my family had Jewish neighbors. And there was never these issues, even while it was all happening. And because my family is from the West Bank, right? We're mm -hmm. from uh, Beitukbu. And at one point, we lived in Betunia as well. There was none of these issues with their actual neighbors. And you're absolutely right. It was, and it is, European colonialism. That's what Zionism is. Totally. Yeah. And so it's just like they hearing your story. Yeah. Too. They brought the racism. And hearing your story, if you go far back enough, that was how everybody lived. There wasn't this infighting that they, that the propaganda makes you believe. That's exactly it. And I, I'm a firm believer that I have to look forward to post-liberation. You know, I have to look forward to being like, 
this status quo is not going to last. You know, either they're going to kill all of us off or the other way around, or we're going to have to learn to live together, you know, for, for better or for worse. So, yeah, I mean, trying to navigate that world here as an artist and, and particularly one who's unapologetically Palestinian. I could say I'm Arab American, but I also don't want to necessarily continually perpetuate that that notion that, that exists, especially overseas between Israel and Palestine, they don't even inter- enter the word Palestinian in their vernacular. They say the Arabs and, and Israelis or the Arabs and the Jews right. without even know- knowing that the Arabs that are living in Israel, those guys are Palestinian. You ask any of them, they will say they're Palestinian. They will always be Palestinian and it will never change. They might have Israeli citizenship like I have American citizenship, but I will always be Palestinian. Right. So that's why I have no qualms about it in this field. I've encountered a lot of resistance from some people, but at the same time, uh, I've found allies and allyship. If anything at all, my my goal, if I'm going to be living in this country, still feeling that guilt of, to be honest with you, living on somebody else's land, I will at the very least acknowledge that I live on somebody else's land. Because what's happening right now and what started happening back then is not any different than South Africa. It was apartheid. What we see and what we've seen in the Jim Crow era of America that continues to this day, even with the, the introduction of weird voter registration suppression bills in Georgia, it's Jim Crow number two. These are all little things that I find are happening exactly the same way in Israel and in America. The treatment of the people is really coming down to not religion, not anything other than you're Arab, you're lesser than. That to me is is why I feel like even navigating this industry here, I need to make sure I'm vocal about being Palestinian. Now, does that mean that everything I do has to be about Palestine? No. And and part of me doesn't want that. Although I, I know that my background, my Palestinian folk music background, my Palestinian background, and I'm proud of all of that too. But sometimes I would like to just be an artist who pursues their passions and their likes in this world and interests who happens to be Palestinian. It's important for me that I am Palestinian, but that doesn't mean everything I do has to be Palestinian. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Just hearing that, it sounds like the conversations that are kind of happening today, where I think, you know, the past generation, everything had to be about being Palestinian because you were the ones speaking and it felt like that, like you were the spokesperson for Palestinians everywhere. And now I think a lot of Palestinians are saying, well, yeah, I'm Palestinian, but I don't speak for all of Palestine. But yes, I am going to represent Palestine (laughs) and I'm going to represent Palestinians, but not everything I do is because I'm Palestinian. Understanding that there are all these different aspects of who we are and who we can be. The closer I think we get to to really connecting to our roots, which is funny because it's like when it doesn't become everything about you, it leaves the door open for you to connect even more to who you are and where you come from. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I totally understand what you're saying there too, because you know it, that ties back to the beginning of our conversation here, which was look how we ended up finding each other because we pursued our interests and our passions. And it's almost sometimes you have to leave a little bit <laughs> you have to sometimes rely on the universe, on God to, to bring you together to have a higher purpose. Yeah. I think everything comes back to intention, which is why I feel also in the end that, you know, I don't try to speak from this place of self-righteousness. I just observe what's there. I've gotten into just as many arguments with Palestinians about understanding what Judaism is. And in fact, there's a whole litany of music in the Jewish tradition, for example, called piyutim, what we would call the equivalent of in Arabic music, in Islamic music, anashid, and what in Christian music you would call teratil or teranima. These are psalms and hymns, basically. But here's the irony. If I played them for you, and I used the same scale that they used in their churches, you wouldn't be able to discern one from the other. Really? <laughs> That's the thing. That's what I'm getting at. So it led me to understanding something. What I was saying before is a lot of Jews, especially in America, who want to connect to their roots, end up eventually coming down this path to realize like, oh, wait, Middle Eastern music is here and still kept alive by Arabs. Wait, this is our history too. And there's this awakening. And for me, I see that as an opportunity to make people understand that Abraham had Isaac and Ismail, right? Right. (laughs) It wasn't just Isaac. 
we are literal cousins. And in being so, we grew up in the same environment in, in that sense. I, I want to create and clarify this picture. And through music, it's allowed me to do so because I've gone in and said, okay, I'll take you on as a student, but you're going to know, first of all, I'm Palestinian. I'm going to give you my perspective on this. But I also started to learn and realize, too, that, you know what, your Jewish history and culture that you're learning, I began to understand that that's also mine, too. Just like you're trying to say that this Arab, Maqam, Middle Eastern tradition belongs to your Jewish heritage, well, I'm going to go take it a step further and let you know, by virtue of me being Palestinian, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish culture are a part of my culture. Why not then? Your Jewish culture, you can practice Judaism. You can practice Christianity, you can practice Islam, whatever it might be. But if I come from that land, by virtue of merely coming from that land, I am influenced by those philosophies, those philosophies of religion. And so that was partly also why I was like, it makes sense for me. Okay, I'm going to learn Hebrew because I want to understand what you're saying. And I'm going to not only understand what you're saying, I want you to understand me in your language when I come back and retort back to you those things that you're saying. It was very idle because you found allyship. But then I also found people that I was able to, to turn around. I've literally had Jewish friends who were like, you're the first Palestinian I've ever met in my life. Wow. From a 50-some-year-old 50, 50 man. Wow. Living in the, uh, working in the arts. Uh, and I'm like, well, that's great. And obviously, inevitably, we end up always talking about this, you know, the subject to some degree. You know, it, it became apparent to him and to other friends of mine that, you know, they too have been indoctrinated in many ways. You know, many people have, have grown up with this notion. It's just kind of the same way that other humans might, white, you know, light-colored or white humans might look at dark-colored humans. Whether they subconsciously or consciously view them with prejudice, a lot of it has to do with what they've been fed, constant diet of. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I want to find myself in those circles. I'm not always proactively jumping into the middle of a synagogue or anything like that, <laughs> but I have performed at synagogues particularly because they asked for somebody who was versed in Moroccan Jewish tradition of music and hymns or something that was non-European. And I, I jumped at the opportunity because I, I wanted to be a one to show, hey, guess what? You're going around teaching about my culture. I'm going to show you that I know your culture <laughs> as well, because that's, that's, that's the way it is. I'm an academic in that sense, and I'm, I'm an anthropologist in that sense, because those are things to me not pol political. These are these are things that might have political resonance, but they're also an also anthropological. And to deny that, to deny the history, is to deny the truth, which is why I also then find myself sometimes arguing with people on the Arab side who are all, we have to varying degrees. Like, I have a lot of friends who live in Haifa, in Akka, in Tarshiha, in Nasra, in Nazareth, who have Israeli citizenship because they're born there. Mm -hmm. It's like you and I have an American passport, you know, because we're born here. It doesn't change who we are, but it, it, it does change what we are in terms of citizens. Right. And so the irony of it is they all grow up, they, they play Arabic music, they play all of this stuff, and they grow up in Arab music, right? But one of my friends, for example, who's a brilliant violinist from Nazareth, now living in France, had to go to France to get a French citizenship in order to even be able to travel to play music in Lebanon and Syria and in other places in, in the Middle East that didn't recognize Israel because he has an Israeli passport, even though he's Palestinian. Wow. Is, is that not insanity? That so, is insanity. And I, I love how you flip it too. how you approach everything. They go around, Israelis go around trying to preach what our culture is, trying to educate others what the situation is. And you're like, no, 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 no. Let me go ahead and tell you about you. Let me go ahead and tell you about your culture. It, it kind of reminds me of not so well-known secret that there are a lot of Arab Jews out there, or there were at <laughs> some point, that there were Arab Jews in Palestine because... Palestinian Jews. Palestinian, Palestinian Jews, Jews, right. But I, I want to <laughs> specify Arab only for the simple fact that that was, that is the, you know, the ethnicity. Palestine is a nationality, but... There is a culture tied to that. There are people tied to that. Oh, there were Palestinian Jews as well who had Jewish roots, but there were also Arab Palestinians who practiced Judaism. It, it's, I mean, the center of all three of the Abrahamic faiths, you know, everybody practiced some form or the other of those three religions. And so the fact that you're going around educating other people like, yo, this is, 
this is my culture, but this is your culture as well, I think is, I don't know, I think it's so profound that a Palestinian is out there doing that work. There aren't that many Palestinians that would make that leap to try to understand both sides in that way. No, and you know, a huge part of that, not you bring that a very profound point up, is a huge part of that is because of optics. Many people don't want to even be seen speaking to anybody there. And, and, but, you know, I have to believe in diplomacy. I have to believe in post-liberation because I will go back there and live there. And I want to be able to do it not under occupation. I want to be able to do it in the West Bank to get in my car, drive the 20 minutes it takes to get to Jerusalem or it takes to get to Tel Aviv without an eight-hour checkpoint. That is my goal in my life. And that is what I hope to achieve for all of us, inshallah, you know, that we all get to that point. But yeah, you know, to do that kind of work here, it, it does, it, it takes walking a very, very fine line because you don't want to be pandering. You also don't want to feel like you're just collaborating. Or, it's a very fine line, but it wasn't my choice that I find myself sometimes in these places. I happen to be somebody, a human being, a regular person who happened to find interest, for example, in, in Jewish litany. But I did the same also in Christian and, and, and Islamic litany as well. I, I like spiritual music, particularly of the Abrahamic faith. But I've also recorded, as a recording engineer and a, a studio a producer, I've recorded Hindu hymns as well. I've recorded Buddhist hymns as well, and a variety of different styles of music. That's I'm kind of like a musical anthropologist in that sense. I, my background is in ethnomusicology. So I study cultures through music. You know, this happened to be one that was close to me, and I thought, I'm going to adopt this now from a historical perspective, not a political perspective. And in doing so, I can get closer to the truth and find commonalities. Because if I only look at these things through a political lens, what's going to happen is that that's the only place I'm going to get stuck. And I'm not going to see everything else. I'll be putting on political blinders. When in fact, there is a great deal more to pursue than this little blight of political colonialism that is occurring in our in our region. And so I just happen to find this interest here, and all of a sudden I get calls. It's like somebody who happens to specialize in something. Are you going to refuse to work with somebody in America if you specialize in something just because they might hold a different political view? <laughs> I mean, I understand that that's a fine line as well. I, I get that, you know, especially with cancel culture and all of that stuff. But if there's an opportunity for me not only to learn, but also an opportunity for me to go in and, and educate somebody about my background, who, like like I said before, who may never have even met a Palestinian. And it's not up to me to educate them or educate anybody about being me being Palestinian or about Palestinians in general. It's about me trying to be me and say, and I happen to be Palestinian, to wake them up to be able to, for them to start to do the work, to defragmentize what they have in their minds and what the notions they've set upon about us. Well, there are many who would argue that this idea of stepping into a space, and rightfully so, you don't have to. It's not your job to educate others about your oppression or your identity or, or any of these things. But there are people who would argue that we don't even have the opportunity to have that dialogue. They exclude us from that dialogue on purpose yeah. to continue the colonization and the occupation. And so... What would your response to something like that be? I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like hypothetically here having one of your arguments in my head with someone. Yeah, no, <laughs> I agree with you 100%. And that, that is also why, you know, often, look, not everybody's going to have the same situation that I've had or the experience that I've had because I've been lucky that music and art, theater has guided a lot of those experiences for me. So I found myself in very neutral settings that weren't necessarily political settings. So if I walked into a service at a synagogue or a mosque or, or a church, it wasn't under this political pretext. It was under more of a cultural pretext. However, I was able to also speak my truth of who I am because I couldn't deny that. And in fact, I was very proud of it. And it offered me an opportunity to step in a circle where under any other circumstance, a Palestinian would not have been allowed or would have, would have felt extremely uncomfortable to walk into a situation like that and to say, hey, guess what? I'm going to dispel every misconceived notion that you've ever had about my people right now. And I'm going to tell you, here I am in front of you with your culture to show you your culture is similar to my culture, to show you that 
I know you, so maybe it would be respectful for you to get to know me. And that's the opportunity that I've been afforded. Now, mind you, not everybody has that ability. It's mainly, it was half circumstance, half choice. Others, though, would fall into this thing, and I would, I would basically say we should all try to find common ground. If we keep regurgitating the same talking points, uh, respect to, you know, our institution and people who, who are activists and fight to all of this. I have all the respect for them. But, you know, the thing is, the truth is this. What they're fighting for is a noble cause, but the people they're fighting for, too, are regular people who just want to live and can give two craps about any political rhetoric. They just want to be able to live on with their life, like most people in this world. And, and those are the people that I always keep in the forefront of my mind. You know, I, I'm not thinking to myself when I walk into a circle like this to say, listen, I'm going to tell you in this congregation here, you should respect the BDS as much as I agree with a lot of the things in the BDS and I will you know, defend it. That's not the right. It, it, it's not the argument. They're not the right argument I'm having. Instead, I'd rather say to them, listen, you have this broad brush stroke that you want to paint all of Palestinian people with, go look at regular people. They are lawyers, they are teachers, they are doctors, they are farmers, they are city people, they are business owners, they are inventors, they are musicians, just like you are. And I want them to see the people. I don't want them to continually see the people through the lens of political activism, if that makes sense. That's that's kind of my argument. I'm not saying that it doesn't have a place, but I want to say that our fight, our struggle is and has and always will be multilateral. It can't just be unilateral. I can't be put into a box and believe everything that the BDS says only and not give room for the way of thought for the, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine or the PLO or or anybody else has espoused things or just things that I've seen and witnessed on my own as well. And so that's where I'm at with some of that. Now, the only thing, the last thing I can just say about learning about the other, in order to not otherize and in order not always to say the Jews this or the Arabs that, is get to know that other. Step outside your comfort zone, get to know that a person, or at the very least, get to know that culture. You can find a commonality. Instead of always pointing out the differences, we need to just remember we're, we're all human beings. Humans just can be so arrogant in their existence. That's the problem. <laughs> what I hear you saying, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of goes on line with what Edward Said spoke about with, you know, just humanizing the situation. And if you look at the situation today, Palestinians aren't humans in the eyes of the occupation and the colonization of our land. We are not treated as humans. And so what you're saying is the answer to this is humanizing Palestinians, but humanizing the situation in general, because there needs to be that relationship. Granted, if you ask me, I think, uh, you know, the other side has a lot more work to do than we do when it comes to that. Um, Well, you know, the person in power and the person who's Fulfilling the occupation, yeah, they have a great, great responsibility to, to put it to an end. And the thing is, is, you know, and unfortunately, no entity in power like that is ever going to give it up freely. You know, there needs to be work that's done in order for that shift in justice and that shift in inequality takes place. A part of it, I think you're right. It has to happen at different levels, at different layers, throughout every way that we can for that to be achieved. And a part of it really is having this humanistic approach on both ends. Even if, if they got to do more work than we do, we'd still have to do some work. If only to remind ourselves not to give over to that hate and not to give over to the way that they separate us and that that propaganda of how we are to put it to to put it in the same words that you did othered and once they other us we other them because we're removed yeah. from each other we're separated and we have this these opposing or what appears to be opposing ideas of who is right and who is wrong Granted, we were there for, you know, we were there. <laughs> we were colonized. We are technically the, the victims here. It's, but a future to be built, you know, there has to be, there has to be some kind of work on both ends. No doubt. You know, it's, it's very similar to the situation that we already see in, in the world. You know, this isn't the first time something like this happens. Settler colonial mentality has been in existence for quite some time. But it really, you know, picked up steam, I would say, probably in the 15th century from Europe. And lo and behold, this style of colonialism, we went from one colonizer to the next, from the Ottoman to the British to the European Zionists. 
it's interesting because I'm not trying to make this about politics, but it's like what you said. In the end, when society itself stops eating what's being fed to them through propagandic media and Hezbollah, etc., when the society itself says we're kind of fed up, which is something I have to say I did see, and you know, at the Oslo Accords, there was an electric air. Because I was in Tel Aviv, I was in Haifa, I was in Ramallah, and I was in Jerusalem almost every single day for the course of three, four months. And there was an electricity in the air that people felt like, oh, this burden is about to be lifted off of our shoulders. But what I want to say is that when societies come together, the way that we saw everybody come together last year after watching a black man murdered on TV in front of us, and the whole world took up to arms because they said, we collectively believe that this is BS. That watershed moment is yet to come for us, but it's coming soon. And I can feel it because the work that all of us are doing, the work of me going into a little space and changing the mind of, of, of one Jewish person who, who's never met a Palestinian, letting them know that, hey, I see you. Can you see me? That speaks volumes. Thank you for joining us for our conversation today. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please visit connectingthefragments.com as all contact information can be found there. Remember, we each carry a bit of Palestine in us. No matter where we reside in the world, we are all a part of the collective. From the river to the sea, there will be a day when Palestine will be free. And we will return.